The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The Department of Justice, as I think I I mentioned at, at the outset, has focused to a significant extent on these kinds of foreign influence cases. And, and that has its, certainly has its roots in the Bob Mueller in investigation and Russian efforts to, to spread disinformation within the United States. But it is also a reflection of the growing focus that the Department of Justice and the U.S. government has placed more broadly on election interference, on efforts by a number of governments, not just Russia, but also Iran and, uh, and China and others, to seek to influence decision-making in the United States and to seek to influence the U.S. public in the United States. And that's part of the reason we've seen the Department of Justice bring a, a record number of FARA and Section 951 cases. I'm Natalie Orpet, Executive Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, Wednesday, September 21st. 2022. This past Monday, the criminal trial of Thomas Barrick began in federal court in the Eastern District of New York. Barrick, who served as an informal advisor to the 2016 Trump campaign and then as chair of Trump's inaugural committee, is alleged to have acted as a foreign agent of the United Arab Emirates. According to the indictment, Barrick acted as a back channel for the UAE to influence U.S. foreign policy. I sat down with Alex Iftemi, a partner at the law firm Morrison & Forrester, and a former Department of Justice attorney specializing in national security matters, including the Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA, and related statutes. We discussed the case against Barrick, the significance of the charges to broader enforcement strategy, and why foreign influence matters for U.S. national security. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 21st, Foreign Agents and the Barrick Indictment. Alex, I'm hoping you can get us started by just telling us who is Tom Barrick and what is this case about? Natalie, it's it's nice to be with you. Um, it is an, an unusual time to be talking about Farah and foreign influence because there has been a lot going on in uh, in recent weeks, really in the last couple of years. And this latest trial in, in federal court in Brooklyn, New York is is just one of a number of things that that are happening on on the foreign influence uh, in, enforcement track. This this case itself is somewhat unique. It's only the second trial under Section nine five one of a of a person alleged to be acting as an agent of a of a foreign government to to influence people in the United States. So who is Tom Barrick? 
Tom Barrick is a, a business person. He's uh, a associate of former President Donald Trump, and uh, he is the owner of a in investment fund in, in real estate company. And as part of, or I should say, in the lead up to in the lead up to the 2016 election, he was an advisor to Donald Trump's campaign and, and subsequently was uh, the chair of the inaugural committee and, uh, and, and an outside advisor to the administration. So broadly, the Department of Justice alleges that Tom Barrick, uh, along with uh, two co-defendants, acted as unregistered agents of the UAE and carried out tasks at the direction of senior Emirati officials, which included influencing the Trump campaign um, and later the Trump administration's policy positions that he provided input on and attempted to directly influence Trump administration appointments, and that he acted as an unofficial, unregistered uh, back channel for diplomatic negotiations between the UAE government and, and the Trump administration. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning a couple of the specific examples that the government alleges in the indictment. Um, so one is that um, in October 2016, UAE officials essentially helped Barrick write an op-ed in Fortune that he later consulted with them on some of the speeches that then-candidate Trump was giving during the campaign in, I believe, December of 2016. Um, the Co-defend one of the co-defendants, uh, Mr. Al Malik, who's a an Emirati national, gave Mr. Barrick a wish list of foreign policy moves um, that he was hoping the Trump administration would take. So I think some of those examples are sort of interesting for thinking through what are the types of influence that are troubling to the Department of Justice. I do want to ask. You, you mentioned other FARA cases and foreign influence cases. I think it's important to distinguish them because there has been, I've noticed in reporting about this case, some conflation of FARA cases, which I think are generally a little bit more familiar to the public based on some of the more prominent prosecutions of others, for example, Paul Manafort. But this is, as you said, not actually a FARA case. This is a case brought under Section 951. So can you just talk a little bit about the difference between those two statutes? Sure. And and I will start by saying, you know, Section 951 is a close analog to, to FARA. There are, there are a lot of similarities. Um, but traditionally, Section 951 has been used for espionage-related prosecutions. Uh, and, and only more recently has it been used in, in the foreign influence context. And let me let me be clear what I mean by that. Espionage cases are are cases where a foreign agent obtains intelligence, passes it to a foreign government. There are situations where, where, by contrast, I should say, foreign influence cases, by contrast, are situations where individuals seek to influence U.S. policy at the direction of a foreign government or even a, a private entity in, in some cases. And certainly direction and control by a foreign entity is a common feature between Section 951 and, uh, and, and FARA. And 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 between espionage and and foreign influence cases, but but obviously the the purpose of the activities, whether to obtain information for a foreign government or to influence the U.S. government, 
are 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 very different. The other important point is, you know, Section 951 has a slightly lower standard of proof, but it applies to a narrower category of situations. It, it only applies when a foreign agent takes direction from a high-ranking government official or, or intelligence officer, whereas FARA applies to activities on behalf of any foreign principal, which can in some cases include foreign corporations, foreign organizations, or, or individuals. And um, the other important difference is FARA's criminal provisions have an express willfulness requirement. You have to know uh, that you have a FARA registration obligation and to intentionally skirt that obligation. Whereas for Section 951, you just have to knowingly act at the direction or control of uh, of a foreign government. So those are those are some of the notable differences between the the two the two regimes, although they're now increasingly being used for for very similar cases. And with respect to Tom Barrick, is it is it simply a matter of the facts presented here, or was there some other reason that it was important for DOJ to bring the case under nine five one as opposed to FARA? Well, we we really don't know why they chose to to use Section nine five one and and. I want to be careful not to, to speculate. You know, we, we don't know what was part of the investigation. It, it may well be that there was an issue showing that uh, Tom Barrick uh, knew that he had a FARA registration obligation. It, it, it could have been uh, a number of things. I, I will also say Section 951, because it is focused on activities conducted at, at the direction of of a foreign government, and in particular, senior government officials or um, or intelligence officials, uh, the Department of Justice may have felt that that was the appropriate charge to bring in this case, given who Tom Barrick's interlocutors uh, in in the UAE were. Okay, so nine five one is not the only charge in the indictment. Um, he is also charged with conspiracy under 951 as well, um, with the other co-defendants, as well as an obstruction of justice and several material false statements charges. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. I I think those are important, I will say, to the case. And and frankly, it may be part of the reason that you see this case being charged criminally by by the Department of Justice. Um, That is to say, as part of the the charges against Tom Barrick, you know, he is uh, alleged to have made false statements and including lying about the direction the that he received from uh, from Al Malik and that he uh, allegedly told investigators that he did not have a dedicated phone or used dedicated messaging applications to communicate with. Uh, the UAE government, when in fact in- investigators found that that was exactly what he uh, he had done, and, and that's what they allege in in trial. So this is a, a a case where I think the underlying facts, although these are separate charges, probably influenced quite a quite a bit the decision of the Department of Justice of of whether to treat this as a as a criminal matter that would warrant bringing criminal charges. It's the cover-up of these activities, the cover-up of the direction from a foreign government that I think in in significant part influences whether the Department of Justice sees this as a situation where one should register after the fact for the activities um, or whether there is something more more sinister and more and, and criminal that that is afoot. 
Do you have a sense of the various factual allegations that are made in the indictment and the superseding indictment? Which are the ones that really rose to the level of concerning that it would have met the thresholds uh, strategically to, and I won't ask you to speculate, but in your mind, what were the more serious charges that sort of would have warranted these charges and especially 951? I think there's a, a couple of things at, at play. So first is the heartland of of fair enforcement and and some of these recent Section 951 cases has been a focus on high-level access to U.S. government officials and the ability to influence uh, U.S. government policy at the highest levels. So I think the nature of the access that Tom Barrick had, uh, as as well as the efforts to conceal the nature of, of, of his activities and, and also the fact that the way the, the superseding indictment is, is written suggests, you know, the, the government is focused on the fact that this back channel for communications essentially was was a way that that could be used to circumvent the ordinary diplomatic channels between between the UAE and the United States are are the, the types of things that the Department of Justice probably was was focused on in in deciding whether to to bring this case. And as a bigger picture matter, why does that matter? Because this this case is brought through the National Security Division um, in EDNY. Why why does this matter from a national security perspective? If there are additional channels besides the official diplomatic channels within an administration and and even prior to an administration with a campaign. It's it's a good question, and, and frankly, it's a it's a difficult one to answer. I, I think part of it is that there's a, a concern about the circumvention of of the normal lines of of diplomacy, and in in this case, rather than go through normal diplomatic channels, the Emiratis had allegedly sidelined the U.S. ambassador and decided that they would use Tom Barrick as as their main interlocutor to. To the U.S. government, and I think there is a a sense in which the you know the way in which those diplomatic negotiations should have should happen, the way in which the UAE government should obtain information from the U.S. government or or seek to influence U.S. policy is through those normal diplomatic channels that are vetted by diplomats and, and civil servants who have the benefit of years of experience in. Um, in understanding diplomatic negotiations with uh, with a particular country, but I'll say I, I think it's also a very thin line to draw because the the reality is that there is a lot of back channel diplomacy that does happen. There there's track one point five or or track two diplomacy that is that is a reality of of international negotiations and uh, in international statecraft, and there are situations where official and non official actors work together to to push global policy forward and and I do think there's there's the very real prospect that a, a conviction here could impact the nature of of future future diplomacy and that this kind of case may well stifle some of that track 1.5 diplomacy that exists uh in in any number of corners and how would you articulate the difference to the extent it's possible to do so um, if there is this fuzzy line. But how would you distinguish between 
what is seen as unlawful back-channeling and this sort of track 1.5, track 2 diplomacy? Well, I'll say one of the ways that I think the Department of Justice is looking to do it in this case is to focus on the quid pro quo and also and, and the financial benefit to 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 the defendants. According to the government, Barrick and Grimes obtained hundreds of millions uh, of dollars for Colony Capital, which was um, their investment firm. And the government points to the fact that between 2009 and 2016, Colony Capital and and they're they're not named in in the indictment, but um, you know news sources have since kind of correlated the two that that the investment fund was did not raise any money from the UAE between 2009 and 2016, but from 27 between 2017 and 2018, Colony Capital had raised over 370 million dollars from from the UAE, and so they are going to to seek to show that this wasn't just a situation where the defendants were speaking their mind regarding U.S. policy and and engaging in ordinary diplomacy, but rather that this was a quid pro quo where, where the individuals were essentially acting at the direction and control of a foreign government for the benefit of that that foreign government and stood to gain financially to to a great extent from from those interactions. And I think the the second point is one that we've already discussed a little bit, which is the you know the alleged cover up and the fact that after those engagements took place and um, and and when Tom Barrick was confronted by investigators uh, re- regarding these facts that um, that he had allegedly lied about the the direction received from uh, from the Emirati officials. So one one other question on this diplomatic track concept. I think it's actually a bit counterintuitive that this statute, if that is a, a main motivator for making sure that we don't have sort of competing channels, why is it that the notification requirement under 951, and of course also with FARA, is to notify the attorney general as opposed to the Secretary of State, who is otherwise sort of seen as the chief diplomat and the person responsible in the interagency process, typically for coordinating diplomatic efforts. And this is actually something that Barrick had raised in his motion to dismiss that he lost in June. Um, he argued that he had actually notified the State Department and uh, I guess assumed that that was enough, or at least argued that that should have been enough. But why is this statutory regime to notify the attorney general? You know, I I don't know the exact impetus for for Congress putting that authority with with the attorney general. But I I will say both Section 951 and FARA create regimes that are administered by, by the attorney general. Now, certainly the attorney general is not the only one who who holds on to that information. And there are processes within the executive branch to, to make sure that all appropriate agencies get that, that information, in, including the State Department. But there's there's no question here that the the statutory regime that, that was created by Congress for both Section 951 and, and FARA put the, the Department of, of Justice at, uh, at the center of those notification obligations. Okay, so circling back to uh, the facts of this case and the allegations against 
Tom Barrick and his co-defendants, I think it's worth articulating, in addition to the conduct that he undertook, uh, is alleged to have undertaken, what exactly do we know about what the Emiratis were trying to accomplish through their coordination with him? You know, it's it's difficult to read into the indictment what exactly the the UAE government was was seeking to accomplish. I mean, it, it's it's fair to say, looking at at the court papers, that there was both an effort to obtain information about, uh, for example, cabinet appointments that the Trump administration was making, but also an opportunity to influence Middle East policy and to make sure that the UAE was seen by the Trump administration as um, as a as a friend and and one that in a very complicated landscape of of Middle East policy did did not get lumped in with with other similar countries and so you know some of the other facts that are alleged in 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 the indictment is is the is the fact that they had back channel communications regarding the the Muslim ban and the fact that the UAE was not included in them uh, in in that ban, and, and and so I think it was an effort to, to to make sure that policy toward the Middle East recognized in 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 their eyes uh, the unique role that UAE had played as, as as an ally of the United States. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers, 
with my personal information. 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. In addition to that, one thing that, that does seem to have been a success to the extent the decision to not include the UAE in the Muslim ban was influenced by the Emiratis. Um, I think another example I had seen was that they had advised against a Camp David summit relating to a dispute between Qatar and UAE and other Middle Eastern governments, and that proposed summit never happened. But I think as a, as a broader matter, I'm wondering how much does it matter to DOJ's case that it be able to show that influence actually did happen. In other words, that there was a material result from the interactions that Barrick had as a go-between. I don't think that matters at all in terms of the the four corners of of the criminal charges. You know, what they have to establish is that there was direction and, and control and and that Tom Barrick and, and the other two defendants Agreed to act as as the agents of uh, of the Emirati government. There are, you know, certainly other cases we've seen where the impact on U.S. policy was limited. So, in in particular, the the example I'm thinking of is the the Maria Butina charges, where um, she was similarly charged under Section 951. It's it's not entirely clear that her efforts 
were particularly effective at influencing U.S. government policy. But of course, that's not the test of whether someone is acting at the direction of or control of a foreign government without registering as, as they need to do. Yeah, and I think that's a really important and perhaps counterintuitive to some aspect of the statute, which is important to articulate. And there's another piece of it, which is that obviously a key element to prove is that the defendant was acting at the direction of a foreign government. How does one generally go about proving that direction and how might that be done in this case against Tom Barrick? That is, you know, part of what will be on trial as part of this case, uh, because certainly Tom Barrick's defense is there was no agreement here. I did not agree to act at at the direction of of the Emirati government. Um, I was not paid a consulting fee. There is no contract under which I agreed to serve as a you know as a government relations specialist and. Certainly, if a document like that existed, it would be proof that the Department of Justice would rely on to to show the direction and control. But in the absence of that, there are certainly other things that that you can point to. You know, communications between the agent and the principal that that demonstrate that that someone is not acting out of their own interest, but rather are are seeking direction from from the principal. There is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and and we talked about a little bit. I, I think the the financial benefit that uh, that Tom Barrick stood to gain, and the the hundreds of millions of dollars that Colony Capital received, is another way that the government will will show that that direction and control. But this is a really difficult maybe the most difficult aspect of 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 this case to prove a trial and we've seen this be a challenge for the department of justice in other contexts so the one other section 951 foreign influence case that has gone to trial is is the case of uh, Bijan Rafikian in the eastern district of of Virginia and that case is on appeal uh, to the Fourth Circuit for for the second time because although a jury had had found Rafikian guilty of of, of acting as a, a, an agent of the government of Turkey, the judge in that case threw out the charges or, or threw out the conviction, I should say. And part of what he has emphasized in in a variety of opinions is that working in parallel with a foreign government and even coordinating some activities with that government doesn't make an individual an agent of that government under U.S. law without something more to show that that someone agreed to act as um, a, as an agent. And I think that same question is going to be decided by the jury in Brooklyn and and subsequently by by the district court judge and and probably the Second Circuit. Um, do the facts here? Are they sufficient to show that uh, that that the defendants acted as um, you know, at the direction and control of the Emirati government. I think that's a really interesting point, and it makes me wonder whether that's a contributing factor in my next question, which was, you know, the allegations in the indictment are are really quite striking. The some of these examples of really the direct connection through these back channels and some of the substantive policy discussions that were being had. 
And in in some sense, given the strength of the indictment, of course, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. But it is a bit surprising to me that this case is not more prominent and not being discussed more generally in the media. Why do you think that is? Well, I suspect it's because there are even juicier stories to to carry the you know the the news cycle. Um, I I agree. I I think these these facts are quite striking, but there's also I think a a saturation of of this type of story, and we've seen a number of different cases over the over the last few years that that get at some of the same concerns about inappropriate influence. Of, of the executive branch, you know, during the, the Donald Trump administration. And this is only the latest in, in a number of cases that have been brought along those lines, including Elliot Broidy and the civil case against Steve Wynn and, and Paul Manafort and Michael Flynn. Um, there, there are a number of these cases involving efforts by foreign governments to, to influence the Trump administration that have been brought over over the years, and 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 this is the the latest one. And although the the facts are 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 indeed striking, they are perhaps not that unique. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that is a bit different from um, from some of the other cases, in addition to the fact that it is, of course, UAE that is the foreign government on the other end of these communications rather than, for example, Russia or China in the case of some of these more prominent cases, um, or at least in the sense of what was really in focus during the Trump administration, especially early on. But another piece of it, as you say, is that it's been quite some time since the conduct occurred, um, because this was, again, the allegations relate to activity in 2016 and 2017 primarily. And this is actually, I raise this because it's actually the subject of a dispute and something that uh, Barrick is focusing on in his defense, which is that this investigation has taken a somewhat unusual amount of time. And actually, when the indictment was unsealed um, last summer, I believe, CNN was reporting that it had taken so long in part because prosecutors despite having made their case and feeling comfortable that they had enough evidence to seek an indictment a year prior, there had been some resistance from the then U.S. attorney in the Eastern District, uh, Richard Donahue, to bring this case. And it wasn't clear whether prosecutors didn't try to bring it or whether they had experienced actual resistance upon trying to. But at least the reporting was that that may have had some influence. Um, And on the flip side, now Barrick is arguing that the fact that he's being indicted now, as opposed to several years ago, and that all this time has passed, suggests that this is a politically motivated prosecution. What do you make of all of that? So I... You know, I, I don't like to to comment on on this kind of news speculation, and and it's difficult to say what did or did not happen within the U.S. Attorney's Office and and the broader Department of Justice. To me, what I what I would say is this is this is a difficult prosecution. There are thorny legal issues uh, and and factual issues to to unravel, and the line between 
inappropriate foreign influence on the U.S. government and non-state actor diplomacy is is a is is a difficult one to to reconcile. And it wouldn't surprise me that there would be those types of questions raised and analyzed within the Department of Justice. And I I see that less as a question of of political influence or political motivations as it is a recognition of the fact that this is a difficult case. Of course, there is a statute of limitations. The Department of Justice has got to work within that. And so they had a time limit that they were up against too in, in ultimately deciding whether or not to bring bring this case. And, and, and so I think that certainly influenced when they ultimately chose to to file the charges as well. Yeah. And to be clear, I think that's entirely fair to not speculate about DOJ's decision in bringing the case. Uh, I do wonder, though, in addition to the fact that that may be uh, perhaps affecting the prominence of this case, especially because um, I should have mentioned, um, I believe the investigation actually spun out from uh, the Mueller investigation, which was, of course, the origin of a lot of other prominent cases. But in addition to the length of time and um, the complication of bringing these cases, gathering the evidence, et cetera, coming up with the proper legal arguments, it may also impact the public sense of how important this actually is. So I I think I want to come back to sort of the bigger picture question of why all of this matters so much as a national security matter. And I'm wondering... You know, do, do you have any ideas on how we could sort of mitigate the sense that maybe this isn't all that important or sort of emphasize to the public why foreign influence in politics is such an important thing for us to be concerned about? Well, I, I you know, I, I think the answer to that question stretches well beyond this particular case. And the Department of Justice, as I think I, I mentioned at, at the outset, has focused to a significant extent on these kinds of foreign influence cases. And, and that has its certainly has its roots in the Bob Mueller in investigation and Russian efforts to to spread disinformation within the United States. But it is also a reflection of the growing focus that the Department of Justice and the US government has placed more broadly on election interference on efforts by a number of governments, not just Russia, but also Iran and uh, and China and others, to seek to influence decision-making in the United States and to seek to influence the U.S. public in the United States. And that's part of the reason we've seen the Department of Justice bring a, a record number of FARA and Section 951 cases focused on, on this kind of activity. That I think it is a a core priority of the Department of Justice to root out some of these efforts to to seek to influence our democratic institutions without properly disclosing what the source of that influence is. Yeah, and I will note, I read an interesting statistic, which is that since the sort of increased enforcement um, under FARA and 951 over the last couple of years, that registrations under FARA have increased, I saw, more than 50% since 2016, which is quite a remarkable difference. Do you think the enforcement policy is having other impacts as well? I think that's right. Cer- certainly, there there have been a lot more registrations and people are attuned, more attuned to the way in which work on behalf of 
uh, foreign governments and foreign principles more broadly can create issues for them under the the Foreign Agents Registration Act or uh, or in the worst case criminal issues under under section 951 and so i i think there is not only a, a greater number of registrations that show the the source of of foreign influence within within our society but it's also influencing the way entities act and the relationships that they choose to enter into because of their you know their desire or not to be labeled as a, as an agent of a of a foreign principal you know under the FARA regulatory regime and does it also make a difference for the government itself so from my understanding registering as an agent does not also come with a, a checklist of what types of things you are and are not allowed to do in your interactions with the government. So does it make a difference to the government to know that individuals are registered as foreign agents? I think it does. I think more important than than the registration itself is, of course, knowing the the fact that there is an agency relationship or that a particular request is is coming at the at the direction or or the request of of a foreign government or or foreign principal that influences the way in which the US government receives that information the and and what they they do with it and so i think that is a part of it and i i suspect that it may also influence the decision of of government actors of whether to you know in some cases take a meeting in the first place yeah, I think that's a great point. So just to round us out, what do you expect to see? I mean, we're just starting today with jury selection, but what do you expect to see from the Barrett case and how should we think about it as a general matter in terms of its impact and what it stands for? I think it will have a significant impact. Um, you know, as as we've discussed it, it's only the second time that Section 951 has gone to trial on on this theory of of foreign influence and and the outcome of this case both in terms of what the jury outcome is but also in terms of what what ultimate decisions might come from from the district court and the appellate court in reviewing a conviction if if one is ultimately reached i, I think it will influence how the Department of Justice uses this this statute in in the future and and the types of cases that they bring. So, you know, I, I don't want to put too much emphasis on on one case. Certainly, it is difficult in in any given context to read too much into the decision of a of, of a jury or a judge. But it will certainly have an impact on on the types of cases that are brought under Section nine five one in 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 the future. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Very glad to do it. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell 
and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.